Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? You know, believe it or not, we actually work really, really hard to make sure that we don't have too many announcements going on, but just the ones that apply to the, to the larger body. But, you know, here's the problem is that it turns out we're a family, and it is so hard to think of who's got something going on that you don't want to share with the rest of the family. And as I was sitting here thinking about all the different things we got to talk about today, I thought, you know, we're not coming together as spectators we're not gathering in this house, in this living room, because we're here to consume something and, and critique it and maybe try to receive something and be amused and then go home and talk about it. No, we're gathering together because our Father has said that we're to gather together and worship Him together and that He's in our midst. And because He's our Father, He's made us a family. And as I was thinking about what that means, it does mean we have to have these Family meetings, don't we? We're going to have those times where we touch base, and, and, and I'll admit it, sometimes it's tedious. I only feel that way when I'm not talking. But it's always worth it, isn't it? And I think that when we're together, there really isn't a wasted moment. So I praise God for the business of this family. And I also praise God that this is indeed a family. Amen? I'd like to start with some prayer. Father in heaven, I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you've caused us to be able to join together with 38 other churches in our area and pray 24-7. God, that has never happened in this area ever before. There is 24-hour prayer happening, God. And I, I ask, Lord, that you would continue to infuse all of us, Lord, and that even more different uh, churches within this area would gather and that we could have every single believer coming together in concerted prayer, so that you, Lord, can fulfill that scripture that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, I will come and heal their land. And Lord, that's what we ask. Heal our land, God. Heal our families. Heal our hearts. Heal us, Lord. And may your name be glorified. Bless this word I ask today, Lord, as we look into the scriptures together. May it be as you, Father, searching our hearts, inspiring us, encouraging us, exhorting us, disciplining us, establishing us in you by virtue of your Holy Spirit through the spoken word of your scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. I'm so glad you're here today. We've been going through the story. The story is the Bible, but it's in chronological order, and it's giving the greater story of from Adam until Revelation, and it is a beautiful and fun adventure we've been on. We're in week 12, and we're going to go through uh, until we've done 31 weeks, and we'll end in Revelation. If you're here for the first time today, we have a gift for you. Uh, I'm going to be at the back after the service. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to shake your hand, and if this is your first visit, you have a huge treat. We're going to give you a copy of the story so that you can continue on in this series with us. We know that the scriptures contain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the scriptures and see the story of God's heart and what he's done for us and why he created us, suddenly things connect and we're able to not only survive, but actually thrive and have abundant life. So I'm glad you're here today. And we're going to come in now. We're talking about a sad part of history, actually. There are many. Um, <laughs> in telling the story of mankind's part of history, there are a lot of sad moments. But the great news is this good God keeps staying faithful and redeeming us in Christ. And we're here, though, unfortunately, in a sad moment. So let's jump in. This is the psalm, Psalm 51, and King David wrote this psalm, and the explanation here, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Just a terrible headline. I was thinking about the integrity and the authenticity of the scriptures, the history of God with man and man with God. And I was appreciating, even in the sadness of this horrific situation, how beautiful it is that God tells the whole story. That the, that the scriptures are written down by prophets and righteous men 
who write not just the fluffy, fancy parts. You know, it's not the eulogy at the end of someone's life when people start sharing and you're all like, I don't think I ever met the person that died. It sounds nothing like them. No, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. I thought that was funnier, but apparently it was too morbid. <laughs> A little too macabre for this group. They're like, that's disgusting. How dare you, sir? But no, it's all of it. And thank God it's all of it because the truth is we're living in this life and we have all of that, don't we? We have the good, we have the bad, and we have the ugly. Thankfully, we also have some beautiful things as well. We don't have to stick to Clint Eastwood's film description. But here's the good news. Because we look into the scriptures and we see all of those things, we can take great comfort knowing that God is not surprised by us. He's not surprised by the things that are really going on in our lives. Our lives read just like the story that we see of men and women from Adam and Eve who chose to become their own gods, chose to, to be autonomous, to decide what was good and evil, and unfortunately chose to bring evil into this world. From that moment, we've been making choices too, haven't we? But God is redeeming us. And so we can look at this and see that God is able to help those that we've seen who have come before, and he has. But if he was able to help even these, certainly he can help me. Amen? So let me catch you up on this part of the story. Last week, we learned about David, and he was cultivating beautiful things in secret that brought about a national victory. The things that he had cultivated in his heart, the things that he had cultivated in his private life became a public victory. You guys remember this from last week. It was a beautiful high point. And God chose David because David was a man after his own heart. And so we looked at a couple of those characteristics of, of what David did that made him someone that God said, I trust you, David. I trust you and I'm choosing you to lead Israel. And so David comes in and he begins to lead Israel, and, and he, he leads them to victory. He leads them to beautiful things. And after some time, it says that when kings go out in the spring to go to war, David didn't. He stayed, he stayed home. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it says that David went out one night, and he stood on his roof, and he looked out, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And so he sent servants to go find out who that woman was. And he was told, that is Uriah's wife, one of, the, one, of the, one of the amazing men in your army. That's his wife. And he says, oh, okay, no problem. Go get her. And so he sends for her, and he sleeps with her. And then he sends her back to her home. Now Bathsheba, as we know, was a good woman. And so what you need to read here is that David forced himself on Bathsheba and then sends her home. Sometime later, Bathsheba sends word to David and says, I am with child. And you, you, you've got to understand, this was not an awesome time for women to be alive back then. We're, praise God, it's becoming more and more an awesome time to be alive for women. Thank you, Jesus, for your redemptive purposes. But Bathsheba would have been considered an adulteress and there wasn't as much pressure for whoever the guy was. Do you remember when, when, the, when the adulteress was brought to Jesus and they threw her at his feet? Do you notice they didn't bring the guy? And they said, we caught her in the very act of adultery, apparently by herself. <laughs> and so Bathsheba sends to him and says, I'm pregnant. Because she would have been considered an adulteress. She would have been in serious trouble. So she's saying, you've put me in a very bad position. Not only have you, have, you had your way with me, but, but now I'm pregnant. What am I supposed to tell my husband? And so David says, don't, don't worry about it. I'll fix this. So he sends for Uriah, who's, who's in the war, and Uriah comes, and David, he's very deceptive in this moment, and he says, how's the war going? He has some small talk. And he says, well, good, thanks for, thanks for telling me how it's going. Now, go home and, and be with your wife, essentially. Go home and wash your feet. But he's like, hey, you know, you've been in battle. You've been missing your wife. I'm sure things will work out. Go, go forth. Because he wants Uriah to think this child is his. But Uriah is a righteous man. 
And in his mind, he's a loyal man, he's a righteous man. He's fighting for the armies of the living God. And so he doesn't. He sleeps actually out by the gate. And David finds out that he didn't go home. He didn't, he didn't go home and, and, uh, and be with his wife. And so the next day, David says, well, stay a couple more days and then I'll send you back. So the, the next night, David gets him, gets him drunk, assuming, you know, I'll get him drunk and, and nature will take its course and we'll cover up my, my sin. I don't even think he's thinking of his sin yet. We'll cover up the fact that she's pregnant with my baby. And Uriah does get drunk. David says David gets him drunk, but he still goes out and he sleeps with the servants. And so David says to him, you know, no, I'm sorry. Before that happened, David had said to him, you know, why don't you go home and be with your wife? And, and that's when Uriah had said, how can I go be with my wife when the ark of the Lord and the armies of the living God and Joab, my commander, are all out in fields fighting the right battle. And he says, far be it for me that I would do such a thing. In fact, David, upon your life, I would never do such a thing. What an amazing man. And so at this point, David realizes the jig is up. This isn't going to work. And so what he does is he writes a letter to Joab, and he puts it in Uriah's hands. And he says, go give this to Joab. So Uriah says, absolutely, my king. May the Lord bless you, keep you. <laughs> and he goes to Joab and he hands the letter to Joab. It's a sealed letter. Joab opens it up. And what does it say in the letter? It says, put Uriah where the fighting is most fierce and then step backwards so that Uriah may be killed by the sword of the Hittites. And so Joab does as David said. You know, I've heard that analogy used that sometimes we do that to our missionaries. We send them out where the fighting is fierce, most fierce. And if we haven't seen them for a while, we step back and stop supporting them. We forget to pray. We forget to give. It's not as exciting for us because we're not with them. And so that's one of the reasons why we pray for our missionaries every Sunday morning because we've sent them out to the front line where the fighting is most fierce to extend the gospel of the kingdom. And may we never forget about them and by negligence, step back and stop supporting them and stop funding them and let them be and stop praying for them and let them be consumed by the enemy. But that's a message for another day, but I think it's a point worth making. And so Uriah is killed. And it says that Bathsheba heard that her husband was killed and she mourned for him, which was over a period of time. And then after she mourned for him, then David sent for her and made her his wife. Whew, problem solved. And Nathan comes into David and he says to David, David, I want to talk to you about something. And David says, absolutely, Nathan, what's up? And he says, there was a man, he was a poor man, and he only had one little lamb. And he loved that lamb, and he cared for it, and he held it. He even fed it in his own arms. He loved that lamb even like an, his own daughter. And, he, and he, he had just the one. And he said, but there was a rich neighbor who had all kinds of flocks, and the rich neighbor had a friend come in from out of town. And the rich neighbor thought, you know, I don't really want to cook up one of my own sheep. So he just took his neighbor's single lamb, and he barbecued it up, and he fed it to this guest. And Nathan turns to David. And you remember David's a shepherd. He knows what it is to love those that have been entrusted to his care. And he says, what shall be done to this man, David? And David said, by the Lord God Almighty, that man shall die. And he will pay, repay at least four times what he's done. Because he only, he, the, the, the other guy only had one lamb, and he took his lamb. He is, will die. And Nathan turns to David, and he says, you are the man. And it says that David immediately turned and said, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, up until that point, David didn't even take the time to think about that he had sinned. I think up to that point, maybe he just had a discretion, an indiscretion. I apologize for my indiscretion. We've heard those kinds of apologies, haven't we? But something changed when Nathan came. Nathan, 
he, he put this in a different package. He, he took David on a journey. It was God, actually, that took David on a journey. And he said, take your own self out of this picture. This is what happened. And think about this situation without your own feelings, justifications, rationalizations. And just look at it for what it is. God has said to us, I'm a, I'm a holy God. I am holy, therefore you must be holy. He said that to us. And he's also said to us, be perfect because I'm perfect. So God has not lowered the standard in any way for us. In fact, Jesus showed up and made things much worse than the law. The law says, don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, but I tell you that if you even look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. We're living in that time. Jesus says, the law says, if you call your brother Raka, which means empty-headed, then you're in danger of judgment with the Sanhedrin for slandering. But I'm telling you, if you even say fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Because to undervalue your brother is to begin to commit murder in your heart. And so here's this standard of a holy God who has called us to love as he loves, which means that I can never lower the standard because to lower the standard of love is to edge others out of it. It's to create a reality that does not actually exude the reality of heaven, which is created in the character of God. Do you understand that to lower the standard of his holiness is to lower the standard of his love? And so the lower the standard of his love is indeed to be unloved. It's to say that you are actually less valuable than you are and that God himself is less valuable than he is. Does that make sense? So David has somehow created an environment in his mind where it's okay for him to take Uriah's wife. I don't know what's going on inside of his mind at that point, but he doesn't even hesitate. He sees what he wants and he justifies in his own mind that it's appropriate for him to take it. I can't help but thinking that at that point, David is, well, one, he stayed home from war, which was interesting. And it wasn't because he'd gotten old and slow. He just, for some reason, stayed home. Because it says, in the time when kings go out to war. But he didn't. So there was something happening in David at this point where he's shifted out of being a man after God's heart to being a tyrant, to being self-justifying, to seeing what he wants and taking it because it's what he wants. And I'm sure he thought to himself when he didn't go to war in the first place, I've really done a great job. Have I not fought the Philistines? Have I not killed Goliath? Have I not done all these good things? And surely people would understand that I need certain things. I'm under a lot of pressure. I'm a king. This is what I want. And who is anyone else to tell me that I shouldn't be happy? You know? Right? Who are you to tell me? You don't get to choose what makes me happy. That's for me to decide. And so David took what made him happy. But when Nathan came and phrased this, in a different way, and took David out of the equation, all of his justifications, all of his rationalizations, all of his own subjective systems that he had created that enabled him to be self-deceived enough to take another man's wife, murder the man, and then marry her, and not even bat an eye, went away because he was out of the, he was out of the equation and when he was out of the equation, the deception was out of the equation. You see where I'm going here? And then he judged rightly. And he said, that man is guilty. And then Nathan says, you're that man. And now David is faced with actual righteous judgment. And in that moment, and this is the part where David does get it right, by the way. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. This story gets worse before it gets better. 
Bathsheba was pregnant with a son, and Bathsheba, Bathsheba's the victim in all this. Bathsheba's a righteous woman of one husband who loves her husband. And her husband, she's raped, and her husband is killed because she got raped. And now she gets to come and be David's trophy wife, one of several. And this child that she's impregnated with, God speaks to David through Nathan and says, the result of your sin is not going to live. This child is going to die because of what you did, David. We get a little bit uncomfortable with these kinds of things. And, and I, I have to tell you, just full disclosure here, I hate this part of the story. I hate the fact that David made a decision that killed a kid. And I hate the fact that God's name gets named in, the, in this story. Because the way this is written is that God is in control, or he's in charge, I should say. He's in charge. And so you and I, because we know the end from the beginning in many ways, because we look at Revelation, and we look at Christ, and we look at redemption, then we're like, well, how come the child had to die? How come the innocent had to be hurt? Why, why did the baby have to get sick? And just to tell you the story, the baby gets sick and dies. Because God says, this does not please me that you killed Uriah that you stole Bathsheba, and the, and the effects of your sin that are going to continue on through here, this child is the victim of that, and this child will not live, and that child becomes sick, and that child dies. And we don't like that. And I'll be honest with you several times, and, and God forgive me, this is true. <laughs> I'll, I'll be thinking with the Lord. How many of you think with the Lord? It's like a conversation going on in your head like, I don't think you should be able to do that, God. And, and I'll be honest with you as well. I mean, I am always honest with you, but I'll be very forthright and bring much disclosure to my thoughts. And that would be that I'm like, if I were you, which is always a really stupid thing to say to God. You know what I mean? Like, if I were you, he's like, you're made in my image, but I don't know where you're going with this. Like, come on, really? But I do, I think, if I were you, God... And the truth is, I don't have the answer to the rest of that question. If I were him, you'd all be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and so would I. Oh, thank you for not giving me limitless power, Lord. But the Lord is holy. And he gave us actual authority in this world, in this life. And he gave us actual freedom. And we want to be selective about that. We want to choose whatever we want to make ourselves happy in the moment. And then we want to blame God when the results of our choices kill an innocent. We want to say, but they didn't do anything. And he says, I know you did. And we say, but why are you going to let them get hurt? And he says, don't sidestep the issue. Why did you choose to do that thing which I told you not to do? You want me to stop the earth and change the laws. You want me to lower the standard of holiness because you've transgressed. We, we get very uncomfortable with the idea that God won't intervene every time we sin and it creates an environment that hurts innocent people. Don't we? We call it compassion, but I think there's something deeper. I mean, I think it's, I, I started this to say, I'm talking to the Lord and saying, if I were you. <laughs> and it's okay to have those conversations. He actually invites them. And it's an open time to actually learn from him and say, well, well what is really going on here? What's really going on here is that I have a propensity, and I, th I, can, I think it's okay to say that we have a propensity aside from being born again, and we're still being transformed by the renewing of our mind, we have a propensity to avoid the reality of our own choices, of our own sins. We don't want to be culpable that we had a decision to make and we made the wrong one and that it didn't just hurt me. 
In fact, the truth is, it didn't really hurt me. It hurt the heart of God, and it hurt someone innocent. And then we have the audacity in that self-justification, that same self-justification that allowed us to make that decision. We turn and say, why would you, God, allow these innocents to be hurt when they did nothing wrong? As though he were the one that made that decision. And the scripture says that the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. See, we have to have the Spirit of God actually come and ask the same kinds of questions that Nathan did. Nathan came under the unction of the Holy Spirit and he framed the question to where David was able to step back out of his own self-deception, out of his own self-justification, out of whatever rationalizations and mental constructs that he'd come up with to actually see this for what it was. And in the moment he saw it, then he knew, I have sinned against the Lord. And so the child dies. And David, in this time, he wrote Psalm 51. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. A transgression is when you Miss, I'm sorry, is when you step across the boundary. Transgression is to step across the boundary. God has put loving limits in this world. He said, these, these are the boundaries, and if you stay within these boundaries, you will love me with all your heart, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. But if you cross these boundaries, such as sleeping with another man's wife or fantasizing in her, about her in your heart, you are beginning to break these loving laws that cause you to be able to love your neighbor as yourself. Now you're stealing from someone else. Now you're forcing on someone else. You see this? So there's a transgression. And then the sin here is to miss the mark. He's saying, I've asked you to do certain things. I've asked you to live in such a way. I've asked you to love with all of your heart and all your strength and all your mind. And you have not done that. So there's sins of commission, and their sins of omission. Are you guys tracking with me? And David says, I've done both. I've done it all. You see, David at this point is not making excuses for his behavior. Freud says that indiscretion, I'm sorry, indiscretion, first of all, means behavior or speech that is indiscreet <laughs> or displays a lack of good judgment. Well, isn't that sweet? I displayed a lack of good judgment in that moment. I'm only human. And I'm sorry. No, no. I was looking at self-deception because I thought to myself, what sort of self-deception, what sort of psychology was going on in your head in order to go take someone else's wife, force yourself on her, and then kill him because he's about to find out? And as I was looking, one of the things I found, Freud, his, I'm not a big fan of Freud, but I thought this was kind of awesome, Freud says that the reason why we have self-deception is because it's an ego defense mechanism. And I would say, Freud, you and I agree about this. It's an ego defense mechanism. Your desire to feel good about yourself is being threatened. I'm sorry, your. Hang on. Our desire to feel good about ourselves is feeling threatened. And so we lie to ourselves. I read a whole bunch, but I just want to give you a couple snippets here. One thing that was very interesting about these, these propensities that we have to justify our own behavior is, is <laughs> this commitment to self-deception, creating an environment where I get to lie to myself all the time. And I was listening. I, I, actually, how many of you watch TED Talks? I watched a great TED Talk about 
self-deception. And this lady was sharing that we all deceive ourselves. And the first step to getting better is to admit that you deceive yourself so that you can change. But she's an atheist and she's a humanist. And so there's into what? In, like, I mean, okay, so I admit that I self-deceive. I think that's good. We can all agree there. And I know that I do it. Also good. And what I need to do is I need to, I need to admit that I self-deceive. Okay, I'm with you. So that I can change. Wait, into what? And then she goes on to say, now social constructs and religion and culture and all that turn you into what you are. And it's true. They do influence you in many ways. I'm not, not negating that. But she says, so you have to figure out what's right for you. Wait a minute. You're a self-deceiver. I mean, what, what, wait. And why would you need to at that point? If I'm going to figure out what's right for me, and I'm a self-deceiver, haven't I already figured out what I want? But let's say that on my journey, and, I, and I'm not dishonoring this woman, I don't think she sees the blind spot yet. She's actually leaving a, an amazing career to go after, and she didn't say what she was going after, but I know what she's going after. She doesn't know it yet, but she's going after Christ. But she said, I got tenure, and I love to teach, but then I found out my joy was not in academia. And so I'm, I'm being brave enough to admit that this is not satisfying me, and I want to change. And so I'm changing into another career. And honestly, my heart kind of broke because she's not turning to the truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so she's still deceived. She's aware that she's deceived, but she's okay with it. Another psychologist said, in our culture, we lie to ourselves all the time. They did a study. A majority of people lie at least twice a day, many of them much, much, much more. I read several articles on this in, uh, in uh, um, several different reviews. Um, one of them was from uh, UCLA and on and on. Here's what's interesting. All of the psychologists landed on you wouldn't want a world where you don't lie, where everybody could just have rigorous honesty because our lies actually protect us so we can be who we really are. And I'm like, did you just say that? Like, our lies protect us so we can be who we really are? How do you know? God comes and says, I am the Lord. Be holy because I am holy. Jesus came and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he is the objective truth. Here's the point. You and I can't know who we are unless he tells us. You don't have an identity outside of who God says that you are. And unless he is your father, you don't have an identity. And you can't find it. And I will agree with these guys. You will self-deceive yourself. And you're just going to need to be okay with that. Unless we turn to him. Now, why, why did I just tell you all this about psychology and whatnot? Are you guys tracking with me? Or are you like, where are you going with this? I hope that's not the case. Many of us are walking around in self-deception much like David. And there's some keys to David's repentance that I want to point out. Because David's repentance has the, the antidote. He's walking through repentance that takes us out of self-deception, takes us out of self-justification, takes us out of rationalization, takes us out of blame-shifting, and just says, you know what? According to your unfailing love, God, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. 
My mama didn't make me do it. My daddy didn't make me do it. My daddy not being there didn't make me do it. My mommy not being there didn't make me do it. My sister who was mean to me that one time didn't make me do it. How life did me wrong didn't make me do it. How culture did what they did didn't make me do it. If anything, if I'm aware of all those things and how they're affecting me and I want to blame them, then God, what does that say about me? I'm even saying that I realize they did what they did and even in the face of pointing at them and saying, they should pay for this then the Spirit of God goes, you are the man. You are that same person. If you know enough to know that what they did was broken, why do you not use the same judgment that what you're doing is broken? You can see that in other people. You can see that in culture. You can see that for everyone else. And in fact, in those moments, we say to the Lord, Lord, you, you're to blame. You created a broken system. But David says, I have sinned against God. And that's really the starting point, isn't it? I mean, we look at the innocent, but I've got to tell you who's the most innocent. God himself. He made us. He created something beautiful and we corrupted it. He created redemption and we've rejected it. He created healing and we've re-injured. This isn't to make us feel bad in the sense of like, oh, we're just dirtbags. No, we're saying, look how valuable he said that we are. Look at what he's paid to redeem us. And may we as David leave all self-deception behind and say, God, I have sinned against you. Are you guys with me? So let me go through the scriptures here. So he begins with this. I've sinned, I've transgressed, I have iniquity, and I've sinned. And he says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And this is amazing. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You see, the beginning of righteous judgment is with God. We shouldn't be scared of God's judgment. We should embrace it. We should look and say, God, how do you see this? Whose sheep did I cook? Tell me, Lord, what man am I? What woman am I? What areas am I deceiving? Because the truth is, Lord, I am deceiving myself. And I need you to send me prophets. And your neighbors, by the way, are the prophets in your life. They will tell you. Ask them. You see, this, seems, this has always seemed really suspect to me that David says to God, I've sinned against you only. It's like, uh, you raped Bathsheba and killed Uriah and your baby died because of your sin. And you're, it was, but it was just God? Does, does anybody else here, I mean, just raise your hand. Does anybody else sort of scratch their head on that one? Like, I do not understand that, David. That seems really disingenuous. Like, sorry, guys, this is between me and the big guy. This just seems horrible, but... but but here's, but here's a, at least a facet I believe is that David catches something. He realizes, yes, these are, these are all collateral damage in the, in, the, in the chaos of the decision that I've made. But what David is saying here is he's saying, it's your law of love that I've transgressed against. He's going all the way to the core of his heart and saying, the conception of this sin in my heart. And Jesus speaks back to this when he says, look, you've heard don't murder. I'm telling you, if you're angry in your brother, I'm sorry, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you're already committing murder without reason. He's saying, if you're willing to throw your brother under the bus in your heart, the seeds of murder are already there. David is seeing this and he's saying, God, the sins that I'm committing, they're against you. I'm starting by saying, your reality, your reality. That's where I started. When I broke from what you had to say, when I began in my own heart to justify, when I began to do these little things, planting those seeds, that, oh God, that's where it starts. It's against you. And yes, it hurts my neighbor second. But I see it now, God. It's you. You're the one that I'm trying to overthrow. You're the one that I'm trying to say, I don't care what you think, I care what I think. 
I don't care what you know. I want to know. If you can't make me know everything about everything that I think about every time I think about it, then I get to be God in that situation. Says who? Says us. We just, it's a rule we made up. Mostly us Western people. Like we have a real hard time with mystery. If there's a mystery, then I'm God of that area which is kind of strangely self-serving if you think about it. It's like, well, no one can. Like, I don't know and you don't know, so I get to be the boss of that. Because how are you going to cross me on it? But God says, but I do know. And I've given you enough insight to be able to navigate in the midst of mystery without you yet knowing the big picture of how this will work out. I'm going to have to land this plane. But I want to say a couple of things. First of all, nothing makes sense Truly, and there cannot be peace in our hearts without the reality of eternity. We will not see the full redemption until Christ comes again. There are injustices that have happened that will not be made right until Christ comes again. There is comfort in the words of Jesus when he said through the prophets, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Because there are travesties that there must be justice. There are those that died without repentance that will pay. I heard it said once that we, we, we hear, especially in this freedom and lavish and beautiful place that we have, and thank you, Jesus, for it. I'm just grateful. We look at that and we say, why would you ever need to comfort people with the words that vengeance is mine? How is that helpful? And to those that have that question, I can say, you've never truly experienced injustice. Because to the man whose, whose daughter was hurt mercilessly and family is gone, who's going to kill the perpetrator because the perpetrator is going to get life in prison and all of his family is dead, that man needs to hear that vengeance is the Lord's. And telling him, oh, but you shouldn't kill. Two wrongs don't make a right. It's like, it'll make it better for me. I don't want to live either. Hopefully as I'm killing him, they kill me. I'm not trying to be sensational. I'm trying to say that God has an answer, a real answer, a real answer, a true answer that has both justice and mercy, that has judgment and redemption. We're not coming with silly little political answers. No, we're coming and saying that in Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we have redemption. And in Christ, we have judgment. Not our judgment, his and David understands this. He says, you, God, you are the one that I've sinned against. It's against you. It's against your law. It's against what you are and everything you stand for. And I decided in my heart that I will make the rules, and I sinned against you. And yes, there's collateral damage, and it's horrific. And in fact, David lived with the collateral damage of his decisions for his whole life. His own son turns against him. His own concubines were raped by his own son. He was chased out of his own kingdom. One of his children died. It was, it was throughout his life. But let me tell you something. When we're raised again in Christ, we will rejoice with David for every victory. And we'll rejoice with that young baby too, by the way. David, when, when the baby died, he said, he will not return to me, but I will return to him. So apart from the blood of Christ, we have nothing to stand on. With the blood of Christ, we have forgiveness. But forgiveness is only for the guilty. And that's where you and I come in. Is to say, God, where have I sinned against you and you only? Where do I have an ecosystem that's built on my own understanding? Where is the kingdom of my own ego defense mechanism? And then like David, we turn and we say, God, I have sinned against you only. Start. I want to go right here. Ah, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. God is not saying, David is not saying, God likes to break your heart. David is saying, my own sin has broken my heart. And I'm not defending it. 
I am admitting my own sins, my own transgressions, my own iniquities, and I'm allowing myself to be broken by your righteous judgment, and I'm just asking for mercy. And it's mercy for change for us, isn't it? It's mercy for grace. It's mercy for redemption. And it's mercy unto holiness. We don't continue on in these self-made kingdoms of, of, of ego defense mechanisms. We don't, we don't live in that place of self-deception anymore. We come and say, God, where do I transgress against you? Where have I built something that allows me to live like this? And that's where this broken heart comes. And we can ask God for that. And here's the beautiful part. And I'll close with this. Can the uh, ushers, could you pass out communion? I want to close with communion today. The full gospel is both the holiness of God and the mercy of God. If we neglect to think about, to meditate upon, and to hear about the holiness of God, and that he does actually have a righteous standard whereby he's called all of us to live as Christ did, then we have no value, and we misunderstand, or we have a diminished value at the most, to understand why Christ had to die for us. You see, if I'm only partially guilty, then he only partially needed to forgive me, right? If I'm just a result of culture and really it's kind of their fault and I just need to have more self-realization and self-esteem, Christ dying for me doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. Like, well, I'm glad you wanted to do that. I kind of needed some of it. But instead, when I begin to see that I have willingly engaged in creating my own kingdom, creating my own righteousness, creating my own morality, creating my own religion, and wanting an assurance of salvation. But I don't go to God and say, God, what does your holiness actually require from me? Then I miss out on understanding the mercy of God. And that's, that's really the beauty and the mystery of the gospel for us right now. As God is moving in this room, I want us to meditate upon these two things. We need the Spirit of God to show us the places where we're creating our own ecosystems, our own deceptions. We need that. We need to know that because of our sins against God, Christ did have to die. He didn't lower the standard. Christ actually had to die for that because God is holy and there had to be payment. There had to be judgment so that we could go free. So we need to understand that's what our sins do. An innocent child died just like in this story and that innocent child grew into a man and died. It was Jesus. But, so there's the holiness of God. But at the same time, we have to meditate on the fact is that he loves us so much that he wanted to do it for us. So he's not this holy, distant God that says, be holy because I'm holy, and if you don't figure it out, you know, but rather, be holy because I'm holy, but all have sinned and fallen short, so I will redeem you by my own right hand, by my own blood. And so there's the fullness of gospel that's available. That's why we can say, God, show me these things, and then when we repent, he heals us. He redeems us. He forgives our sin. And so, David demonstrates a complete surrender to God. Without defending any of his actions, he sees in that moment, because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, this is where I've sinned, and this is where I will repent. I will make no excuse. I ask only, God, that you would search me, show me where it's wicked, and I will repent. Let my sin break my heart, God, so that I will turn from it. And we can say, thank you for Jesus, that we have that opportunity and that option 
because he paid for it. We could never pay it. So I want you to just take a moment, close your eyes, and ask the Spirit of God, Lord, where have I sinned against you? Where do I have self-deception? Where are the places where I'm justifying myself to you and others to myself? Where am I trying to be God in my own life? What are the sins of commission? Where are the places where I actively keep trying to do things you've said I'm not to do? Where are the sins of omission? Where I live a life where I'm not doing the things I know you ask me to do? Give me a heart that cares about the things you care about. when you're ready, you take the cup. You take the body which was broken and know that he's paid for it. That there's no condemnation for you because in Christ Jesus, you've been redeemed. And take the blood knowing that the payment has been paid, that his blood has reconciled you back so you don't have to die. And that even in the one moment of death on this earth, we are raised with Christ in the next life. And the things that are pending, those too will be redeemed in that day. And when you're ready, then leave this place and share the goodness of God because he has redeemed you and he loves everyone on this earth the same way.